Hello and welcome to On Documentary, presented by KIOS at the Movies. I'm your host, Joshua LeBure. Today, I have a special conversation with filmmaker Robert Green. Robert Green is a documentary filmmaker and serves as the filmmaker-in-chief at the Murray Center for Documentary Journalism at the University of Missouri. Green got his start editing documentaries before making his first feature film, Owning the Weather. He has since gone on to make some of the most innovative and exciting documentaries of our time. Earlier films like Fake It So Real and Kate With an Eye were direct cinema films from a very personal perspective. Later, with films like Actress and Kate Plays Christine, Green started to explore more heightened films about what it means to be a human and a performer. In recent years, the scope has expanded, but still focusing on the performances. With films like Bisbee 17, which admittedly was one of my favorite films in recent years, and his most recent film, the Netflix original Procession, Green seems to be realizing what he's been working toward, and these films are seeking to actually help people. In my conversation with Robert Green, we discuss most of his films and dive deep into the growth of his filmmaking, as well as discussing filmmakers we share an affinity for, like Frederick Weisman and Douglas Sirk. Now... Let's get to my conversation with Robert Green. You know, a lot of people didn't treat documentaries like cinema. And then I see your films and they're very much cinema. Uh, and I'm curious if we could just start there. Yeah, I mean, to me, uh, it, it comes down to the same thing, which is, you know, what movies inspired me when I was, you know, learning about cinema and um and sort of never really i never had that bias you know i never i guess i guess one maybe one trick is that i never really watched like the the boring stuff you know the quote unquote boring stuff like i think you know i think people today when i was a kid you couldn't turn on history channel and, and i like history channel there's a lot i like about that or you couldn't you couldn't turn on the the stuff that is like military history you know or whatever it is that you know now you can watch all kinds of nonfiction, you know storytelling on television when i was a kid you, you couldn't do that so maybe my exposure to documentaries was from the beginning just stuff i liked and stuff i was interested in and 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 you know, Frederick Wiseman very early. Uh, when I saw Hoop Dreams from Steve James, uh, you know, I think I probably saw it 94, 95, around the time it came out. And that was like something I had never seen before. It was sort of this this weird uh vision of the of a film where it could be epic and personal and real, you know, and or at least based on real people. So you know, uh, seeing the Maisel's films early in in my life of as a cinephile was was um, you know important. Or even like really like I started to think about nonfiction with the work of Peter Watkins, for example, um, at 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 the university that I when I went to um, North Carolina State University. My professor there was a guy named Joe Gomez who was. Uh, and is still one of the preeminent scholars of Peter Watkins films and his films mix fiction and nonfiction pretty, pretty radically. And so for me, you know, there was never this moment of like, oh, that's something I got to get away from. It was always cinema. It was always, I was always excited from the beginning from things that were called documentaries and things that weren't called documentaries. So everything from Maisel's to Peter Watkins to Chantal Ackerman to, you know, uh, even John Cassavetti's films, 
anything, anytime there was some, you know, sort of tension between what was staged and what was real, I was always most excited about that. Like Godard films, early Godard films that had that element to it or to them. I would, I would just, you know, obsess about sort of that sort of uh, moment of creation. And so, so for me, you know, I, I, I never thought nonfiction wasn't cinema. And then when I start making things and editing fiction films and directing documentaries and editing documentaries, like, to me, the most, it's still the most exciting sort of uh, mode of, of making films. There's so much being made, so many docuseries, so much true crime, so much just stuff being put out. And, and I feel like it does it in a, in a lot of times, I feel like the most popular stuff uh, doesn't feel very human or caring. And that kind of worries me a little bit. Do you ever think about that? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it doesn't, because there were, you know, um, I don't want to overstate this at all, but there is, there's so much discussion of the algorithm, right? Like, but when you, the, the real ethical situation that, you know, uh, that happens is when you try to fit nonfiction into sort of set genres, it, it's always a problem. Like, and it has very little to do with the current boom of true crime or whatever. And now there's like this sort of uh, new evolution of true crime that's a little bit less murdery and a little bit more, a little less, or a little less that, a little bit more heisty maybe or something. And even that though, you know, they're, 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 they're making, you're making television product, right? So even if it's appearing on a streaming platform, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of entertainment. And so when you start to overthink those things, it can get really nauseating a little bit. And I, I kind of just separate them out. I, I just, you know, like the, the, when, with the advent of reality television, the idea of semi nonfiction maybe is a, is a good way to think about it. You know, it's been, it's been marketable for a really long time. That That's all, that's all that stuff is as well. Like, you know, even stuff that's, a little bit more taken seriously, like, like a, a series I really, I kind of love and hate at the same time and really dislike aspects of it. The Jinx, for example, a few years ago on, on HBO, you know, that, that uh, series had some amazing moments and also it was horribly put together in some ways, in, in my opinion. And, but, but like, but I just, that, that's just, it's just, um you know, it's entertainment and it, and if you if you go down the path of thinking of the ethics of entertainment, it's it can be really tough because you're dealing still with real people's lives. And in, in, in the case of true crime, a lot of times it's real people's deaths. And and that is and that's really troubling and can be really upsetting. Um, the, the bigger influ- problem is how these very popular shows and and anything that's popular is going to have there's some tension in the culture. Right. Like. But the way those have influenced other kinds of filmmaking, which should be a little bit more adventurous or should be a little bit less sort of cookie cutter or less um, sort of playing to the same notes that that maybe like a popular Netflix series is is playing to, you know. Um, and I, you know, Netflix is an interesting one because my film is on Netflix. Net Procession was uh, as of last year was 
was on Netflix. And so I love that platform. I love the fact that that film is going to be seen by so many people, but I don't love the, the influence of what is successful, but that's always the case. The fact is, is that documentaries in general, you know, have never been economically successful for any real period of time. It's always chasing this sort of elusive idea of a, of a documentary boom right now we're chasing the streaming you know, uh, service dollars and the streaming service things that, that it's either awards driven or driven by sort of, you know, the, the economics of something like a, a true crime series. Right. But, but, you know, I, it, I, I just want to go back to what you said before though, that thinking about the influences, it, I think we all have those moments, you know, and to me, if someone watches say American Vandal, for example, which I think is a great, Mm -hmm fake series from a fake documentary series from a few years ago. If someone watches that and as, and is inspired to go out and make nonfiction, then that's great. You know, like I was inspired by, you, you mentioned a couple that you, you know, that you know, like grizzly man for you, I was inspired by uh, the cruise, which came out um, in 98 and American movie, which came out in 99 and the and both of them incidentally were called not documentaries by the purist at the time uh the cruise was the first mini dv shot film that was it was transferred to to 35 millimeter and and distributed around the country and really got a real run it was one of the it's the first mini dv film that got a real run um just before uh blair witch project came out but it it features a guy named speed levich who is doing his job as a, as a tour bus guide. And, but which means he's acting the whole time. He's playing to the camera the whole time. And a bunch of documentary purists said that that wasn't real documentary. And then American movie comes the next year. And in that Chris Smith, who has gone on to make a lot of these Netflix series, he he's, he's, you know, directing Mark Borchardt, who's a filmmaker uh, who is playing up a version of himself, which he's very aware of, but also is him at the same time. And both, and that was called not a documentary. Oh, you know, he's acting or all this. And now we look back at that statement, it's ridiculous. But a whole generation of filmmakers who are my age, I turned 46 a couple of days ago, a whole bunch of us of this generation saw those films and were like, you could just take a camera and go film an interesting person and then come up with something. And like, okay, and it doesn't have to be strictly journalistic or whatever. So, you know, I, I think each generation is sort of inspired by the things they're inspired by. And now I hope a bunch of people are fighting against some of the sort of uh, as Peter Watkins would call it the mono form of, of, uh, of true crime. Cause that's, that really is creatively deadening in a lot of ways. I'm really curious to get into uh, you know, your career specifically and you know, what inspired you to get into, you know, filmmaking and documentary filmmaking specifically and i know we kind of touched on what interests you in it but you know how did you get there essentially as a filmmaker yourself yeah i mean it was i i, I don't really think i overly thought about nonfiction at first i just wanted to make stuff and then i wrote a script so at the same time i was joe gomez's student i wrote a screenplay for i believe one of his classes and um or maybe not, I don't know, who knows, but I just hated it so much. I hated the process of writing a screenplay. And and the whole time I was like, 
it, it was a bit, it was based on, I, I had been, a, uh, uh, I'd worked at a restaurant that, that was in Charlotte, North Carolina or outside Charlotte, North Carolina and Matthews, North Carolina. And it was, uh, um, occupied by, um, a bunch of transplants from Buffalo, New York and, or, and actually this tiny town called Tonawanda, um, North Tonawanda, New York. And I love this milieu so much. And I remember just thinking, well, I, I just wish I could bring the camera in and actually capture the real life, but that, but how could I do that? I can't really do that. You know? And a lot of my career has been like these seeds of ideas and then being like, well, I can't really do that. I can't really do that. And then eventually I figure out how to do it. Um, but that, but that, but I wrote a screenplay that was trying to sort of mimic the the real rhythms of the place, and I just, and it just, it seemed, you know, hokey, and I hated it. And I remember I dropped it, I dropped that screenplay off at my friend's house, and then hated, and then went back to his house and took the screenplay and threw it in the dumpster, literally threw it in the dumpster outside of his apartment. And I was like, that's it. I, I I'm not writing screenplays ever again. Now I, I have since. Um, you know, certainly written a bit and, and writing is a big part of my process, but it's not in the screenplay form uh, almost ever. So that sort of just made me think like, look, if you want to make movies, you got to come up with some other method. And then I made like a couple of early things that were student things that mixed fiction and nonfiction in ways that I thought was like exciting for me. And then, um, and then I went and basically like, once I graduated, I went to I went to City College of New York and for school. And there I'm just after uh, graduating, I, I made some experimental films there that went and played some film festivals like New York Underground Film Festival and Chicago Underground Film Festival and places like that. And then I met uh, Doug Tarola at Fourth Row Films and Susan Bedusa, where I started editing marketing videos for them for many years and sort of set aside my own stuff. I kept doing my own experimental shorts that got out there in some ways. And then after working with them for five or six years, they said, what do you really want to do? And I, when I said, well, I kind of want to make my own films. And by that point, it was like clear that I wanted to go in the direction of, of documentary. I'd fallen in love with what the, what the, 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 uh, the sort of the whole thing, the, the whole culture really of documentary filmmaking. And, and then we started making films together. So that's that was a little bit of my trajectory. Um, and I've been working with Doug and Sue uh, at Fourth Row Films since, you know, 2002. So 20 years this year, which is kind of remarkable. Yeah. And your first feature was, uh, was it Owning the Weather? Yeah. So that was, so basically I had an, an idea from a from an article. I can't, I brought it to Doug and he said, well, just make this in-house. Like, can you, you can make this and do your job as post-production supervisor for four through films. And, you know, they helped, they helped me by paying me my salary. I raised a little bit of money through family and we, we traveled all around. It was just me and my partner, Deanna and our baby. And we just like made this film uh, and, and making that film, I, you know, I think it was a big process and, and, you know, it, it premiered at the Full Frame Film Festival in 2009. And that that's awesome because I was from North Carolina. So the Full, full Frame was a big deal to me. But I, I didn't really love the movie. I, I really felt like the movie was not the kind of thing I wanted to make. Ironically, you know, I thought I was making something that would possibly be be something that would sell. And, and the film did find a distributor, a very small distributor, and played in theaters like for one week. But um but uh, I was urged by Doug early in the process to make something a little bit more personal, a little bit more experimental. 
And I didn't listen to him. I thought like, oh, no, no, no. This has got to be a little bit more journalistic. The process sort of played out. And I was like, you know, I'm done thinking like that, you know. And um, and then the next film was immediately right after, even before Owning the Weather was really done. We went and um, Sean Price Williams, who's a very celebrated cinematographer, and I went and made our film um, Katie with an Eye. And then we made another film after that, Fake It So Real. And those films were much more observational, much more character driven very quickly made like over just a week or a couple days. And, and we found like, you know, I just, I almost wanted to correct the entire uh, sort of idea of, of owning the weather, just want to make things as fast as possible and sort of discover really the language of the work that I wanted to make. And that's what those films really were in some ways. I wasn't able to find owning the weather, weather or Katie with an eye, but I did see fake. It's so real. And I just think that it was just such a, I've seen a lot of films about kind of independent wrestling at this point. Um, but I thought you just did it in such a way that felt so it was less like, in, like what I loved about it, it was like so much less interested in just like the violence of it and just more like interested in like these human beings and the way they interact and, and who it attracts. And I love that kind of tension between like these people that'll like pray together and stuff like that. And then they're like cussing and drinking and smoking. And like, it's like this really interesting dichotomy that you captured in that film. How do you think back on it? You know, whenever you think about that film. I think it's a real was uh, a breakthrough. I mean, Katie with an eye was about my sister and fake. It's a real uh, Chris Solar who's in there is my cousin. So these are very, very personal films for me. You know, um, I am a lifelong pro wrestling fan. I also, I see a lot of overlaps between what I like about any art form and the art form of pro wrestling. You know, the, the idea of, of sort of taking something real and blowing it up to an extreme uh, sort of volume, I guess, or or really the mixture of 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 the false and the real, the the staged and the and the the real, like that. Pro wrestling does it almost like sort of effortlessly better, or more truthfully, maybe not better, more truthfully than 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 most art forms, you know. And and so to me, just the idea, I knew that there was something in a documentary that was very grounded in following real people's lives that also was grounded in the mechanics of pro wrestling. And how could you play that up? And how could you sort of very subtly hint at, you know, sort of the way that we, we inflate our, our lives, you know, the way that we tell stories about ourselves, the way that we become characters in, in our own movie. Right. And, and, you know, uh, I love that film. I mean, I, I I think some of the language in the film, like today, would I be so comfortable with the homophobia? Um, maybe not. I mean, that's the world I grew up in. I, you know, I, I grew up, I didn't grow up in Lincoln to North Carolina, but I grew up in essentially a, a, a town exactly like that, maybe 45 minutes away. So pretty damn close. And I grew up with that sort of language. And sort of just hearing the cat, there's also a little bit of casual racism in that film. And looking back on it, I, you know, would I, would I, today I probably would feel like I was giving platform to those ideas. I think when you watch the film, it's pretty obvious that, that we are, you know, uh, sort of, um, we're, we're showing the worst sides of, of these guys' language and how they speak to each other. And, and the irony, of course, of uh, the homophobia is that uh, wrestling is the homo most homoerotic art form there is. So uh, 
that, that irony, I don't believe is lost on audiences. So I, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's good, but I, I, that film was a real breakthrough because it really, you know, it's where I started to really, really work through ideas of performance and documentary and the relationship when you can, when you're watching a performance in a documentary and there's some sort of blurring there that happens, what is the sort of process for the viewer of of thinking through what they're seeing and and i got really excited by th- by that you see in the beginning of that film it's a bunch of staged violence right and you're not really sure when you're watching it is this real or is this not and and then as you get to understand the art form a little bit through watching the film you understand that it's a very choreographed thing and it's meant to elicit a, an emotional response and and that that sort of took me in a direction of thinking about performance in a very acute, very straightforward way, I think. The language, too, just I mean, it just felt like I grew up in southeast Texas. And I just think that that's uh, I could see how you would feel that way. But it also felt like you weren't necessarily uh, endorsing it, but just showing how these people were. Uh, and then next is your film Actress. I feel like that one really is like when uh maybe you took the ideas that you were kind of exploring and excited about and really like really embraced it do you feel that way does that feel like a breakthrough as like as far as stylistically and i i read somewhere that you were inspired by one of my favorite filmmakers as well uh douglas cirque with that film i just love douglas cirque i love melodrama and i love the idea of like mixing that with this kind of observational documentary style yeah. I mean, you know, the Basils were inspired by melodrama as well, making great gardens, for example. And and there is a great tradition of, of melodrama and documentary, um, you know, me- the melodrama being specifically a genre that is about interiority. Um, it's often about so-called women's spaces, the, 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 the you know, the, the, the home as a space of, of drama uh, where, where, you know, you're taking importantly for Cirque, Cirque was an intellectual and an emotional filmmaker um, in in the way he wanted you to think about what you were watching actively. You know, he wanted you to think about the images and the way they were constructed and what their intention was, but also he wanted to make you cry and he wanted to make you feel these emotions in a very deep way. And that just that sort of blueprint and um, possibilities was, a you know, it, but that, but all those ideas really come from Brandy Burry, who is the star of Actress. You know, like meeting her, the first idea, yeah, it was absolutely a breakthrough. It was a breakthrough based on a few things, like Fake It So Real played. You know, both Katie with an I and Fake It So Real premiered at Trufoss and um, got out there in the world. You know, they both had very limited theatrical releases and got some notice and. And, you know, Roger Ebert loved Fake It So Real, which was always something that I could, I could, you know, couldn't imagine of happening in my life. And, <laughs> and, you know, and he, it, it did. And uh, that was awesome. And, it, but, but it felt like, like, it felt like, I don't know, part of it was just the, the sort of support I had from, from Fourth Row Films and Doug and Susan, like I, if it, it felt like it was time to go in a deeper direction. Right. So but a lot of that was inspired by Brandy and just, I, we were neighbors, we were close and we were getting closer. And I was like, just like, there's something here. Like, let's, you know, I, I had this, I, I, I met this person who like, you know, whether there was a camera or not, she was always performing. And so I really started from the premise of if you put a observational camera on this woman, 
is it a documentary at all if she is constantly performing and constantly aware? And that just created this, you know, once again, this thing that really goes back to the, the original things I liked about movies. When I watched, you know, Jenna Rollins and Faces, I'm watching a, a person, an actor who is hyper aware of the camera and the film is essentially watching her act, you know, like what else is, is faces other than watching these actors act in a sense. Right. And they're brilliant at it. And so they suck you into the world, but it's not like a linear, you know, there is sort of narrative things that happen, but really it's this magical thing that, that sort of, where you, where you don't know what, it feels so authentic and real. At the same time, it feels so actorly and staged. And, and, and you can't pull those things apart. It's this, it's happening at the same time. And it's this magical feeling. And I just, I felt that with Brandy. And, and I just felt like, you know, we talked a lot about Cassavetes because I, I feel like, you know, we were neighbors and it turns out Brandy was dealing with a lot of, uh, um, a lot of things, right? Like a lot of personal things that she was processing. She was having an affair. She was, her, her, her partnership was ending with the, with the father of her children. And it was, and I didn't know any of that when we started, of course, like when I learned all this, I was like, oh, we we can't continue to make the film. And she's like, what? You said you wanted to hear my truth. Well, here's my truth, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, okay, well, that is fair. Um, And so we, you know, we went down this direction and it was just like, we, we thought a lot about Cassavetes because he would bring the camera into his own home. You know, love streams is a film that happens in their house, you know, and they, and it, it you know, he made very adult films with, with his friends and neighbors and what, and his wife and his brothers and like, you know, like in his, you know, uh, his, his family, his actor family, act, you know, um, and I, I, we were just really inspired by that, that exploration. And that's what that film became was just this really interesting, you know, and, and Brandy the whole time is trying to be authentic. She's trying to fit, figure out who she really is. And I'm the whole time filming her with this fascination that she can never stop acting. And that, that sort of creates this, this new thing, right? Like, and, 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 you know, it's very inspired by films like a married couple films, you know, uh, some of these proto reality television um, films like the Alan King film and, and even some Wiseman films, um, you know, but in a, in a sense, it was, it was us discovering this, you know, a language that really represented both of us very directly. It's really interesting because you mentioned Wiseman too, and Wiseman's known so much for being like very observational and like, but a lot of his movies feel very staged and they feel almost surreal because you're like, why would they let the camera in this room right now? <laughs> totally. I mean, he he's an interesting filmmaker because, you know, he he says that, you know, there, he didn't really get performances. At the same time, he's filming people performing their jobs and also at the same time, he considers himself more a novelist than than a documentarian in some ways. Um, so, yeah, his his films are f- are full of some of the greatest performances ever captured, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. I, I, there's this one scene in the store uh, where they're like in this like board meeting and just the way everybody's interacting with each other. I was like, these people are just playing job right now. Yeah. And regardless of if they're doing that for the camera or whatever, like we're all always like have some kind of performance going on, especially at these like at these corporate type meetings. Everybody's like puts on this voice and this like and this, you know, kind of 
presence that they're trying to to push out you know it's really interesting it, it, it in the in the store is one of my favorite films because of that because of how um in tune it is with the performances of that like that's not just a store that is neiman marcus in dallas in 1983 like that is the height of the idea of dallas as a place so it is a absolutely fascinating film precisely for what what you're picking up on like it, it you know it it really is about the way the way they perceive themselves and the, what and the, the projection of this idea and what he and what he really does and this is what's so inspiring is through the performance of the jobs so through the documentary lens you see the performances play out and but those performances aren't you know for me like there's nothing interesting about blurring the lines between fiction and nonfiction. That that itself is not, not interesting at all. It's what do you what is happening when when that happens, and and for that film particularly, I feel like it's the, one of the great films ever made about capitalism, right? Because you just understand the point of sale version of the performance of wealth and the performance of the salesperson. And you just get the so much of the phoniness and the reality and the need of creating need and creating want and desire and creating an image and all that all comes from his ability to see performances. So, you know, it's, it's, it, that that's very much in the in the way that he's doing that and i find that very very inspiring yeah it's really funny too there's this scene where this guy's trying to sell a fur coat and just the way he plays like expert in fur is just yeah i mean it it just says something that's so because you can't tell the difference in the film like you can barely tell the difference between the coats but this one's like forty thousand dollars and this one's you know twenty thousand dollars why uh, and I, he has, I, such, I totally, I yeah. know that. Yeah. I know that scene so well. I love it. He has so such much. a keen way of doing that. And especially he has this film called Aspen and I'm from Colorado. I mean, I grew up in Texas. I lived in Colorado for like 20 years and just knowing what Aspen is now and seeing him filming Aspen at this time when it's going from being a working class mountain town to being this like rich person's playground where like Tom Cruise has a house and Michael Jackson had a house and all this stuff, like seeing it in that transitional period, just it just shows like just where you put the camera and who you decide to film and in what order you can make such an indictment on a culture without having to explicitly tell someone. And I think that that's beautiful. And that's what attracts me to nonfiction so much. And well, not even just nonfiction, but in uh, to cinema so much. And, and whenever people can bring that into nonfiction, without being too precious about it. I think that that's so powerful. Yeah. Well said. And, and it's funny cause I've seen some critiques of your films, you know, of people being like, Oh, this isn't a, this isn't a documentary. You know, this is the, you know, this in some ways, I feel like you're telling these stories. Uh, and, and I'm going to skip over and go to Bisbee 17 because this film like really got, got me. And especially because I just recently participated in a, a showing of the Wobblies film that is being re-released from the 80s. Um, and we did an episode about that and I had a bunch of guests on. And then I didn't even I've seen the posters for Bisbee 17. I had never watched it. You know, when I finally went to go watch it for this conversation, I was just pulled in immediately. And I was like, there's no better way to tell this story. I feel like 
because you mix the performance and the stage stuff with the reality, you get to something so much more human and real and something that's, you know, so vague, like labor struggles or something that happened like, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, you get to something that feels very human and how this trauma lasts in this community through the family members and how a lot of those like tensions still exist. And I find it just incredibly powerful. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that means a lot because that was one of those ones where I had an idea when I first went there to Bisbee in 2003 and it was to, to stay, to restage the deportation with the locals, whatever that means. And it wasn't, but it wasn't something I could do. Like I just had no idea how to do that. I didn't even know what that would be. Right. And then, but then by the time we got to, you know, 2016 into 2017, when we're making the film, I, I figured out that that sort of mix of the personal and the performative and the historical and uh, there, there was a, I had a several ways in through sort of, you know, make, making films that I feel like, like, you know, uh, had some high points and some low points and some things I wasn't in control of and the things I w- was in control of. And yeah, to me, like just a side note about the documentary question, it's like, it's ridiculous. Like why, like people would say like Cake Place Christine is not a documentary. Like, okay, wh- why would I claim that it is if it, if, if it weren't based on all the things that were really happening, I'm just more open about the artifice of the process than maybe, than maybe other filmmakers are. Right. And, and I, and I feel like with uh, actress, it works really well. Keep place. Christine goes a little bit off the rails, although I appreciate the people who like that film. I, I have my own issues with it, but then coming to Bisbee, it was like, well, the, this artifice has to take us somewhere specific and meaningful because it, because there is, because it, you know, in the simplest way of thinking about it, like, you know, the IWW was a performance troupe as well as the most radical union that ever existed. They, they, they were famous for putting on performances, you know, like a minor would die and they would put on a stage play that featured a real, his, the, the minor's real funeral marching through town and they would sing songs and put on, and they, they would use images in a theatrical sense. They, they obviously graphically, we talk a little bit about it in the film, the graphics of of the 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 um you know the flyers that they would put out were so far in advanced and and just the images that they were created they were incredibly image based and in fact that's one of the problems with the IWW is is they would they would they would have people you know this isn't even in the film but they you know we we heard stories that they have people go into the grocery store and say we're going to blow up the grocery store if you don't join the strike and they would do it in this really theatrical kind of way and they didn't have any ammunitions. They never, they never blew up anything. They never, they didn't have guns, you know, like, uh, but they, so they, they really understood the performative power of organizing at the same time they were, they, sometimes that performance went a little far. And then the performance of power from the sheriff in Bisbee, for example, this is a guy, Sheriff Harry Wheeler was a guy who wished he was born in the, in the old shootout days, which never really existed anyway. He, he, he wishes he was a tombstone character and he wasn't, he was in the industrial age where you couldn't just go, you know, shoot up the bad guys or whatever. You had to perform within so-called laws 
which, you know, he exploited and was manipulated by the, the copper companies. And so you and the copper companies, of course, are performing this entire idea that they're pro-war. And the only way America was even, you know, Americans were even convinced to join the Great War, uh, World War One, is through propaganda, which is all performance. So it's just, you know, that's once you realize the sort of way that the Bisbee deportation, which was, you know, 1,200 striking miners, almost all immigrants rounded up at gunpoint by almost all white people and deported out of town, Anglo-Saxon white people. Once you realize that what that is, is an intersection of American mythologies and American pathologies and uh, sort of all these sort of levels of performance of, of identities that are in conflict, then you really can take, and then, and then, and then beyond that, the, the current, the historical trauma, which plays out today in the town, this is a place I love. So when you realize that, that people, whether you were born there and raised there and you're pro company or born there and raised there and you're, appalled by what happened, or you're someone like Laurie McKenna, who came into town as an artist and who's a sort of liberal artist who came in and was appalled at what she found out uh, once she fell in love with Bisbee. All of that plays out in your in their daily experience. And so what there is, I, I appreciate the way you said that. There is, I don't think there is a better way to tell the Bisbee story because that is the truth. And, and uh, the truth is a series of real responses and mythological responses and performative responses and emotional responses. It's all those things. And I think that's what we were kind of going for with the film is to, to mix that all together. And once again, just like Wiseman, like try to use performance to do something. Not It isn't about like, oh, wow, I don't know if it's real or not. It's not about that at all. Yeah, and I and I and I don't think you ever really like it. Your film doesn't seem preoccupied with, with trying to figure out what's real and what's fake. Because, like you said, it's like that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is like getting to the core of, uh, the story that you're trying to capture through the performances and through creating the performances, which Kate Kate plays Christine does. Uh, I'm one of the people that that's the first film that I really saw and and looked up who you were <laughs> so that was the first film that i remember because it came out i was like a caitlin shill fan i you know watched all the you know joe swamberg films she was in and all the uh you know like quote unquote mumble core stuff and then kind of was familiar with her films for a long time and when kate plays christine came out i was just so blown away by it um and especially you know, because it kind of came at that weird time of, you know, when like Armageddon and Deep Impact came out, it was like Kate plays Christine came, came out and then Rebecca Hall's Christine came out. And, and it was like one of those moments I felt like. Uh, but yeah, I just thought that film was so great. But I think that, um, you know, what Kate plays Christine did and what actress did, I really felt like taking that into this like bigger story about a whole town and still capturing that, you know, really personal feeling with the people involved. And then I think you really did that again with Procession. I really think that 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 almost felt like the kind of, um, a, again, just another way of like taking a story that's so hard to process and and really seeing, um, I don't know, it, it was like Bisbee 17, I was just so, I just loved it so much and I, 
fell in love with all the characters. And then I watched Procession this morning, just like, you know, um, for the first time, uh, finally got to watch it. And, and it took a lot of the stuff that you've been playing with and put it in this like situation that, uh, is so hard to watch, but it felt so important and so caring. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate everything you're saying. It's very flattering and humbling, especially now. I mean, I, I, I imagine it's a little bit difficult to talk about it after having seen it this morning. I'm, I, I'm thankfully in a completely different place with the film, right? Like I, the guys are doing pretty good, you know. Um, and yeah. the process itself was was amazing for us all to go through. I mean, to me, it really is like thinking about that progression of like, you know actress was so personal for us. And then Kate plays Christine to Bisbee. I could, I just got obsessed with what I wasn't doing right more than what I was doing, what, what I was right. Like I felt like we, you know, influenced by all the filmmakers that, you know, came before Jean Rouge and William Greaves and all, all the great filmmakers that sort of played with all these sort of boundaries and pushed in certain di- di- you know directions. There's nothing really new about any of those boundaries, right? But there, but but maybe for me it was just like trying to like trying to help people, be, you know. And like in Bisbee, that in Cape Place, Christine, it wasn't that. It was act. We were dealing with some serious. Uh, traumas among ourselves, really. And thinking about Christine Chubbuck as a um, the, the woman who killed herself, who Kate plays in that film, um, thinking of her as a sort of, uh, you know, a way into thinking about all these questions of why we should tell stories in the first place. That That's a film that is about crisis and it's in, in the film itself is in crisis. And then, and then uh, Bisbee 17 is a little bit more like, well, we've gotten through the crisis. I want to build something here. And then still at the end of Bisbee 17, there's this guy that says, you know, this is the largest group therapy session I've ever been to. And then, but guess what? I didn't have therapists there. And I didn't, I didn't fully embrace the fact that we could help, you know, and like, maybe not everyone feels like they need to help with their, with their filmmaking. I do and did. And like, I sort of realized like we, you know, we did help, we did help Bisbee, but I, but it wasn't active in the same way. And so we started thinking about what is the, what is the point of putting a camera on someone in the first place? Like why even do this? Same questions that Kate plays Christine is asking really what, what's the point? What's the point of this? And then I saw this, the press conference that opens the film and it was just like, well, the point might be to give those guys something to do, you know, and maybe maybe that'll help. And and just seeing the power, the cathartic power of of staging a scene, making a film together like we saw in Bisbee, that that cathartic power, if you could use that in a more pointed way with some real therapists that are helping you focus the work, uh, could you do something that is um genuinely meant to move things forward, you know, and I, I, you know, I've talked a lot about collaboration with the participants on screen from, from, you know, the guys in fake it's a real and even Katie and Brandy, certainly was a, you know, complete co-creator. I think Kate is a co-creator. Sean Price Williams is a co-creator. 
you know, the entire town came together in Bisbee and obviously the crew was much bigger and Jared Alterman shot the film and still the same producing team, me, Doug, Sue, Bennett, Elliot, um, all of us. Like I thought a lot about collaboration. Well, this, this really put our, you know, money where our mouth is, so to speak, like let's really give power to people on screen to shape something that they can do something with. And, and I believed that that experience would be meaningful to the viewer because then you could sort of take something so horrible as, you know, Catholic priest abuse of children and make it relatable because we are all processing trauma all the time, you know, um, all of us to some degree or another, you know, and, and that was one of the big goals of that film is like to make that, to make those guys feel less far away from all of us, to bring them closer and for uh, them to bring themselves closer and for to bring us in, you know, um, and say like, you know, if we could do this kind of thing, then you can, you can approach your own sort of healing however you need to. Yeah, there's some kind of, I mean, it really feels like so many films like tell you, there's exposés, there's things that tell you all this bad stuff that's happening in the world but rarely does a film feel like it's actively doing something. And it, it was hard to tangibly say what that feeling was while watching it, but it felt like with Bisbee and with Procession, that both of those films felt like they were actively doing something and they were actively being created by the people in it. And I felt like that was just such a radical feeling and, a, and it was such a catharsis for a lot of the things that I've been kind of watching and, and things I've been seeing more recently. Um, and so I just have to, yeah, I just had to say that out loud because it really did feel like, um, yeah, it just felt, I mean, it felt cathartic for me as a, you know, I haven't been through that, ex that specific experience. Um, but I have a lot of like religious trauma from my past. I have my dad passed away when I was 18 in kind of a violent way. Um, you know, I kind of grew up with a lot of like trauma around poverty and stuff like that after my dad passed away. And so it's a very different experiences, but there's something about seeing these films that felt like, oh, there's a different way to make movies that feels like it's active and it's trying to actually do something. And there's something alive about it. I, I appreciate that so much. I mean, to me, it's like, it, it, it's like, um, yeah, it's just like, what's the point, right? Like, I, I don't think it's very interesting anymore to just document something because we can document anything and and everyone documents all the time. There's There was some, when, when the Maisels walked into the Beals' house and filmed their intimate space and were able to capture, you know, sort of the contradictions of, both you know wealth and poverty and and their their lives as a as two older women and all this stuff that was radical like that was beyond anything we could imagine and it's nothing today there's nothing to it like there's it it's every day we see you know um cameras are capturing i mean some of the images coming out of texas today for, for you know uh, for the the and I'm not even talking about like violent image. I'm talking about the 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 parents trying to get to their children. You know, like like there, there's nothing. There's no film that's ever gonna get like no documentary film is gonna be able to to create images that can be casually created. And you know, sir, sure, a documentary filmmaker might come along and take those images and contextualize them in a new way and use footage 
to tell something bigger. That certainly is a goal that should be should may be maintained. But to me, it's like it just turning a camera on something. You know, I I I just think it it also just affects people in a way nowadays that it just didn't affect people before and you if you're going to do that you have to be if you're going to be the person who's actually turning the camera on to people you have to be very very cognizant of what that means and this is something i teach here at, at you know you know the university of missouri at the murray center for documentary journalism where i teach we talk about like the, earning the screen and sort of earning the ability to show real people's lives right because what it's not special anymore to just do that for its own sake right so for me it is a matter you know of thinking about like i'm not sure if you know if a film can change the world but i know for sure it changes the lives of the people on screen and i know that for certain and so if i know that for certain then i have to make their lives better in some way now how, what does that mean specifically? That can mean all kinds of things. For me, it, it means believing in the power of art, as cheesy as that is. I believe completely that making stuff makes things better. Like, you know, like just, just the ability to make stuff and the ability, knowing that like, now I've had a few films and my last couple films were at Sundance and this film premiered at Telluride and is on Netflix. Like. I don't have a big audience, but I do think the film will get out there, right? Like I could, I could make a general sort of promise to these guys that like we can get this out there, and and that privilege of having any sort of audience that I've stumbled into, um, you know, like w- what can you do with it, right? And so like it just it just really is about questioning the point, and I feel like with procession it was like another level to that and I, I and you know and this may this sounds so grandiose but going back to that you know 21 year old kid who was in joe gomez's class i had this revelation about all my favorite films and it was basically something to the effect of like my favorite films were always trying to push the the film form forward in some ways so whether that's like in a, on an academic editing level like eisenstein or like you know Orson Welles making F or fake or whatever, like, you know, always trying to say like, here's a new place for the, for the, for the medium of cinema to go. Well, for me, like, I, I don't, I want to make films that you, you, if you're a documentary filmmaker or you like documentaries or you think about documentaries or you're a fan of, or audience member, you can't make or watch them the same after seeing whatever I've made. And I, and I, I think that's like, I think that's the same mission that all my heroes had on some level. Like you can't, you can't just go make a biopic after watching Kate Plays Christine. You can't just make a film about a town without watching Bisbee 17. And you can't claim to be collaborative with your, with the subjects, quote unquote, you know, participants of the film. You can't claim that and, and see procession and take that seriously. You got, cause that's real collaboration. And, and a lot of and this this world of documentary is full of a lot of words and terms that are bandied about, you know, um, in order to raise funds to get films made. And and I just I, I hope that my films like, you know, can push people to really think deeply about what they're actually doing, you know, and and among the goals, that's one of them. 
I'd like to thank Robert Green for being so generous with his time and discussing these films so in-depth with me today. This episode was produced by me, Joshua LeBure, with support from my co-producer, Courtney Bierman. You have been listening to On Documentary, presented by KIOS at the Movies. For KIOS, I'm Joshua LeBure.